Well, good morning. If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John. 1 John, and we're going to continue today in chapter 2. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're certainly glad that you're here. Thankful in God's providence that He has brought you to be uh, part of our gathering today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. And um, if you're nervous about not being able to find First John, just flip all the way to the back. You'll find Revelation. Go a couple books to the left, and there you will be. Wonderful to be able to gather with you this morning. And before I go on, I just want to stop and say thank you. Um, you know, I've had several conversations in the past couple of weeks that have allowed me to meditate on the things that I am grateful for in um, my own personal life and walk in the Lord and um, how LifePoint life as a church has impacted me. And, and I think, I don't think, I know with all certainty that the greatest kindness that this congregation has ever paid me is by giving me time to be in God's Word. I think the first couple thousand years of eternity I won't get over that reality. I hope eternally I won't give over the reality that I've been given time to be in His Word, to see things that I've never seen before, to be refreshed by the reality of what John is writing to the church. Uh, but when I study, I don't know how it is for you, but when uh, I read my Bible, it doesn't, unless I'm in a sideways mood, um, it doesn't hit my neighbor, it doesn't hit the congregation first, it hits me in my own life. And so I'm just so thankful. Uh, and I think that I, I owe you publicly saying thank you. Uh, with that, we return this morning to uh, what John is writing here for the church. And we've learned that John is writing for our joy, that our joy may be complete. And he reminds us of the reality of our sin, which you might think, well, how, how does that bring joy? He also writes about the reality of God's holiness in verse 5 of chapter 1. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. There's not even a capacity for God to do anything that is unrighteous or unholy. Um, and then he goes on to encourage us that Jesus is our advocate. There is no fellowship with God. He points to the reality that our joy is rooted in our fellowship with God. Friend, if you're here today and you find that your life is joyless, uh, you find that this present age is dark and difficult, uh, and you seemingly can't find joy, I encourage you that the reason for that is that fellowship with God has somehow slipped in priority in your life. Because real joy only comes as we have fellowship with God. We are created beings and the purpose of us being created is to bring God glory. We aren't tuned well and don't function well outside of our fellowship with our Father. And so John writes to remind us of this, that in a dark world, our joy will only be complete as we look 
to have real fellowship with God. And that real fellowship is conditioned on the atonement and the advocacy of Christ. That we can't have real fellowship with the living God without coming through Christ. There is no other way. What an incredible reminder that we have. We have no hope for joy outside of the person and the work of Christ. And therefore, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we have to see, is so near to our joy. It is so part and parcel to what it means to have joy, to understand that this is no small sacrifice, that His advocacy for you, as we learned last week, who are in Christ, is not limited in any way. And that somehow when you mess up on a day-to-day basis, when you sin, God's advocacy, Jesus' advocacy as the one atonement, the one sacrifice that has satisfied the wrath of God and has removed sins of all of those that belong to Him, His advocacy is not limited in any regard. In fact, that's what What John wants us to understand in the second verse, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, our sins, but the sins of the whole world. What he is saying is not only is the atonement and the advocacy sufficient for the sins of the first hearers of this letter, but his advocacy and his atonement is sufficient for everyone who believes on Christ. All of those that we find believing in the Old Testament in the coming of the Messiah and all of those that follow John who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have a sufficient atonement and an unlimited advocacy this morning. That is reason to praise God. Um, To give us joy. To, to, To fuel our lives in such a way that we don't walk around wondering If I tabulate up all of the bad things I've done, is God going to be exhausted with me? The answer is no. Because every sin that is leveled at the grace of God is annihilated under the blood of Christ. And we can rejoice in that this morning and go boldly before the throne of grace knowing that we are forgiven. That the atonement of Christ is sufficient for everyone who believes. And so John goes on with that in mind to write, Now that you understand, I'm writing so that you may not sin. Sin in one, one, one vein of thought. There's multiple definitions to what it means to sin. But hamartia, one of the Greek words, really carries with it the connotation of sin being simply to miss the mark. So it would be sin to misinterpret these first two verses. It's not, there is not a word in your Bible that is inconsequential. I hope that we all believe that. That there is not one syllable of one word that doesn't matter. All of the divinely inspired word of God matters. And what we see in knowing that John is writing for our joy And that he wants us to understand that the the reality of our sinfulness and the reality of God's holiness and the reality that Christ has given a sufficient atonement for all of those who would call upon his name and that he stands as an advocate is that he wants to give us a good foundation. 
As he moves on to what he's going to say next, he wants everything that he's already said to be the foundation. So to misinterpret to this point is not inconsequential. It means you've gotten the entire foundation of why John is writing wrong and your interpretation of everything that follows then will also likely be off as well. And you know what that will rob you of? Not salvation, because our salvation doesn't come from good hermeneutics. May God be praised forever, because we've had 2,000 years of bad hermeneutics in many respects. It won't rob us of that final work of Christ, but it will rob us of our joy. Now, if we ask ourselves this morning, why is it that the church seems to be up against a wall in our culture? Why is it that we seem to be so deluded in our um, efficiency in heralding the gospel and in living the Christian life in our own day and age? Is it not this, that we have not taken the word of God seriously and our joy has vanished away? I hope that you have joy knowing that you have an advocate in Christ this morning, that His sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of all of those He intends to save, and that He is saving those at this very moment. Would you stand to your feet and do honor to the reading of God's Word, knowing that we build upon a firm foundation of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John here writing again under the inspiration of the One who has hung every star, in the night sky. Under that power, he writes, My little children, I am not writing these things to you so that you, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. This is the word of the Lord to you and to me today. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today grateful for your grace. Father, we pray that you would instill the truths of these verses that you have inspired into our hearts. Father, I pray that we would come away today grateful for knowing the reality of our assurance of faith, that we would be rooted in Christ all the more, and that we would see the firm foundation on which we stand as Christians, and that out of that we would bring you glory by heralding the gospel to our neighbor. Father, I pray that you would meet with us in this time and break down in our minds and in our hearts all of the misconceptions that we've built up, that you would receive glory as your people feast upon your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, words matter, don't they? And I think I've made mention several times of the reality that many times people... Uh-oh. Car alarm. People um, make the mistake of viewing the Christian life as something that is merely mechanical. Uh, people uh, attack also doctrine... Because they, as they think about 
particular doctrines that are put forward, they think, well, that just sounds mechanical. One doctrine in particular that gets this kind of label is the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, The reality that we believe that God inspired every one of the original words of the Bible. And people will say, well, then if God is the one who carried along these authors to write in this way, then He is making the authors of the Bible nothing more than mere robots. And that's just wrong. That would be to offend the will of man. What we learn is that people get all up in arms before they ever begin to understand what they're talking about. As it turns out, the doctrine of inspiration does not teach that the original authors were robots being forced into every word. They had their own styles of writing. They had their own set of vocabulary. They brought their own experiences to the text. But that doesn't undermine the reality that God, in a verbal plenary sense, inspired every single word. God is the author of Scripture, and yet He used human agency in its authorship. You see, the reality is what God does is far better than mechanical. It's, it's far less than being dependent on the will of man. It, it, it isn't just merely waiting on somebody to come up with a good idea. It, it is far better than merely uh, leaving it to human will. And so, we can rejoice knowing that these words really do matter. And John is a great example of what I'm trying to say here. Uh, God, uh, John has a way of, both in his gospel and in his letters, of using particular words that just he favors in his mind. If you read the Gospel of John and then go through and read John's letters, it, in my opinion, it is absolutely, there's a lot of arguments, and I haven't even, I haven't even brought up the arguments because I don't think it's worth our time, really. Um, there's a lot of argumentation and debate about who really wrote these letters. Uh, and to me, it's so utterly plain when you read John's Gospel and then you read these letters because you see that the same uh, language is being used in so many different areas. And every preacher has peculiarities, some more than others, and particular words that they love to use. John's no exception. And he uses this word that we're going to spend a lot of time on this morning in so many places. The word to know. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. Here John introduces the doctrine in total of Assurance. We can know that we know something here. We can have confidence. We can be assured of something. We can take the reality of the doctrine of the atonement being unlimited for every person who believes and definite and total for them in every area and we can make that our own personally and know that we rest in that atonement. We can be assured of our salvation. It's interesting how John, like Paul, interweaves doctrine and application. We have the doctrine of the atonement, which he goes on to apply. 
But he doesn't get very far in his application of the doctrine of the atonement that we would know that we know him, this propitiation, this atoning sacrifice, this advocate that we have. He doesn't get very far in his application of that doctrine until he comes along uh, to another doctrine. Now, some people like to, you know, when we write books theologically or we discuss things at home, we like to make hard lines about things. The doctrine is in these verses and the application is in these verses. That's the way the Bible works. No. It's not that concrete. It's doctrine flows into application. And the application of one doctrine uh, really ends up spinning out another doctrine. Uh, Another set of teaching about what is true of God and His work on behalf of fallen men. If we think about it in terms of Twin Buttes, you know, the reservoir that's just outside of town. And there is a a dam, there there is a defined line of Twin Buttes versus Lake Nasworthy, but the water from Twin Buttes runs into Lake Nasworthy, doesn't it? And the reality is, in a sense, there's not this clear defined line. And so it is with doctrine and application. One flows into the other, and that's what's going on here as John writes. He he is speaking doctrinally of the atonement, and he wants us to get that that, that foundation correct and and the advocacy that we have in light of that, that atonement. And then he goes on to apply the reality that we can have assurance of our salvation. John says that the atonement, the advocacy, and our assurance all go hand in hand. All of it fits together. And you can't mess up one without affecting the others. So why is the church in such a difficult strait this morning? Why are so many, um, why are so many churches in decline? Uh, why are so many denominations fearing that somehow... Uh, the works that they're about are, are, are not going to endure because they are not resting what they are doing on the atonement of Christ, His advocacy, and the assurance that the people of God have in those works. You see, we need to make sure that we don't just come and marvel at the theological realities to which John puts before us. We need to, uh, we need to come... And marvel in a way that we personally are assured of our salvation. That that we know that our personal sins are atoned for. That our guilt has been taken away. That that we know without a doubt that we are in Christ. Now there are some preachers that I think do better to give us doubt than they do assurance. Uh, You know, one of the things in college that was a peculiarity and I would whisper to Sarah, pick on the preacher... I'm getting my payback now because people do that to me. But there would be pastors who would say, do you know that you know that you know that you know? Well, not even the Apostle John does that many knows. Like, do you know that you know? It's that simple. Do you know that you are in Christ? That is the question. In fact, Peter says it this, this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be sure that you are, in fact, an individual who knows the living God, that you have a sacrifice, an atonement in Christ, and that your that your Savior is advocating before the right hand of God the Father this morning for your salvation. Christians can know 
that they are in Christ. We can know that we are going to spend an eternity worshiping God. And now we're back to doctrine again. We are in the doctrinal vein of eternal security. Now, this has caused a lot of debate, of, uh, of knowing in an eternal sense that, that we can be sure that we have persevering faith. In fact, the Council of Trent, one of the, the Catholic councils, wrote this statement. If anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he has learned this by a special revelation, let him be damned. It's not a light theological disagreement. And there's just as many people inside of Protestant churches this morning who would also disagree that you can know with all assurance that you will spend an eternity of uh, uh, with Christ, that you are in fact saved. But John, in response to all of the theological bull butter, he thunders through the ages with these words in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not temporary eternal life, eternal life, hard stop. That you are eternally secure. There's many reasons, I think, why not just people, not just the Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, but many others take issue with the doctrine of eternal security. Well, some will say, well, it, it can lead to a haughty attitude. People will say that they're convinced that they know that they have perseverance, that they're in Christ, that they'll spend an eternity in heaven, and they might be arrogant about it. I promise you I've met people who understand the doctrine of eternal security, and they're arrogant. Doesn't undermine the doctrine at all. Their arrogance isn't even part and parcel to whether or not the Bible teaches that we can know that we are in Christ. So we can't let those, those fears dictate what we believe. Or those, there are those who consider the weight of God's holiness. And the, 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 the width of His, the breadth of His majesty. And they say, how could we ever be so bold as to say that we know that we are going to be with Him forever. How can a sinner ever say that? Maybe there are those who have come to know some superficial Christians who take the promises of Scripture and they trivialize then their walk with God. They, they say, well, because I know that I'm going to spend an eternity in heaven, it doesn't matter how I live my life. And so there are categories of people that will, will, will run away from the doctrine of eternal security and the assurance that Christians can have because... After all, it's, it's going to have that kind of antinomian effect in your life. But if you boil it all down, I think this is the biggest reason. We just want people to act right. We want them to act the way that we want them to act. And if, if salvation can be known to certain people who are prone to sin, they might sin. And we want to build a better doctrine than the doctrine of eternal security to insulate ourselves from people who might abuse that doctrine. That is absolute nonsense. The fact is, the whole problem when we, when we start talking about 
eternal security and assurance that, that we can have in Christ. The problem is that often the arguments begin to spin around man and what man can do and what man's responsibility is. And all of the arguments that we are given here are not about man. They are about God. The gospel in its fullest glory always calls our attention first and primarily to the glory not of man, but of God. Our understanding and assurance that we have saving faith should not be rooted in who we are, but rooted in who Christ is at this very moment. That's why John writes. John doesn't go far in writing before turning to Christ in chapter 1, verse 2. He was made manifest. He points to the reality that came in the flesh. Verse 4, our fellowship is with Him. Verse 5, God is light. Verse 7, Jesus cleanses us. Verse 9, He is faithful and just. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous. Verse 2, He is the propitiation. Not only for our sins the first recipients of the letter, but for the sins of all of those who would believe upon His name, for the eschatological world, the world that God intends to save. And then in verse 3, he says, we can know Him. Where are all of John's arguments leveled? Towards God. The, the, the doctrine of our assurance and of our eternal security is rooted not in who we are, but in who God is and His work on our behalf. You see, the problem often is we have our eyes upon solving a perceived problem, a theoretical problem, of something might happen in this vein if we go theologically in this direction, but God in His Word and in His plan of redemption is not interested in solving all of your theological, theoretical headaches. He is actually in the work of redemption. He's really saving people. From beginning to end. And he's doing it eternally. So no one should really take issue with assurance. Because our assurance is not rooted in man. Our assurance is rooted in Christ. And friends, it's so important that we keep our eyes on Christ. Too many people get sideways in the body of Christ. Because we become so consumed with our neighbor. Churches have literally fallen apart because we come into the body and we say, well, I just don't like this person or I just don't like that person or I don't like the way they do this or they do that or I don't want to serve in this particular way or in that particular way. People are difficult. I hear that all the time. But here's the reality of the church. When we gather together on Sunday morning, you know what one of the greatest glories is? Is that you and I are not the point of our gathering. Christ is. Jesus is the point of the church this morning. And the reason why we are so weak in joy and weak in our witness is because we put man at the center of all things. doesn't matter if we like everyone in the church. What matters is that Christ receives glory. In fact, all of the Bible points in this direction. The entirety of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. And I don't mean to be rude, but if you really have read your Bible, individuals who, well, I know my Bible well, I know what this Bible says, but I just don't like the people in my church. 
Well, can you really say that you like very many of the characters in the Bible? I mean, because they're all a mess. I, I mean, you, you may like some of them because you've read what the Bible says about them with rose-colored glasses. They're not, they're, they're not the heroes that the Sunday school posters picture them to be. They are sinful wretches under the curse like you and I. Saul was a spineless leader. David was an adulterer. Timothy was a doubter. Paul was a religious fanatic and a jerk. Peter was weak. But Jesus is gorgeous. Christ is glorious. And all of what we should be about should be in understanding who He is and what He's done in our lives. Now, incidentally, we can like one another and we should love one another. But that's not the point. That is an outworking. The point is that God would be glorified. You remember these words that we read this morning. John chapter 5. Listen to this interaction that Jesus has with religious people. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you... I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying we get so enamored with our own glory that we forget what God is doing to bring glory to His Son. The Bible is not first and primarily about you. It's first and primarily about the glory of the Son. That is the reality. And so people then also will come and they'll say, and I think this is the religious leader's problem in this particular passage, they'll say, well... You know, I'm going to keep these commandments. I'm going to do good things and God's going to be pleased with me. Jesus says, there is one. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You think the law is going to save you. But I promise you, on the last day, if you think that you can, that you can accomplish living up to the standard of the law on your own, in your own merit... Jesus isn't going to accuse you. Moses will be there. Because the law of Moses is there to point out that you're not righteous. That you're not a likable individual. And it's only God's grace that ultimately can save you. That only Jesus can save. It turns out that even the law in the Old Testament Mosaic system, the Levitical system, points directly at Jesus. Because it is there, as Brian read this morning... From Galatians, it is there to be a school teacher, to point us and spur us on to Christ. Receive Him, because it is not our own righteousness, it's not our own goodness that will bring us into right standing with God. It, it, that's not what will give us assurance. What will give us assurance is that we're resting in the atoning work of, of Christ, in His sacrifice, and in His advocacy for us at this very moment. That's how we can know that we are eternally secure. Belief in Christ is the only way of salvation. Part of what Jesus is teaching is the reality that we've already heard from John. The world 
lies in the power of the evil one. This world is full of people, religious people, who are seeking their own glory. There are people this morning who will name themselves to be Christians, but they will reject the reality that salvation is completely front, back, top to bottom, every which way you can spin it, of the Lord, period, hard stop. And you know why they will, re they will reject that reality? Why they will reject the reality that salvation is of the Lord in us coming to Him and regenerating faith and it is ultimately Him who is doing the work of sanctification in us and it is only by His merits that we can hope for glorification. It's all His. But do you know why they'll reject that truth? Because they want their own glory. It was the same way with the Pharisees and it's the same in our day. And they'll make a bunch of good arguments. Well, what about... And they'll fill in the blank with, I guarantee you, they won't be able to get away with arguing from the perspective of people first and God second. But these passages, what we know that we know are not about us. It's about Christ. It's about Him. Religious people often make the mistake of looking at themselves first and God last. So how does John have any encouragement or any, any comfort in this world of religious people as he is beginning to speak this gospel? Well, he gets his encouragement and his joy from the same place, the same uh, area that, that Paul did. As Paul was writing later in life, in Romans chapter 8, he writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he was assured that once a person is in Christ, there was nothing that could separate him from Christ. Paul was an old man also writing to a young Timothy. And he wrote this in 2 Timothy. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Amen. He knows who he knows. And if that is all that he knows, that is enough to know. Right. Beloved, think about it this morning. You don't know what the stock market's going to do next week. You don't know what the doctor's report is going to be. You don't know what your relationship with your spouse may be a week from now. You don't know how your kids are going to turn out, or maybe you do. And anyway, um, you don't know all of those things, but you know what you can know for sure? That you are in Christ and that you belong to Him and that He is your advocate and His atonement is enough. Amen. You can know that. And how dare anyone stand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim a gospel that would undermine that knowing. Right. We know what we know. In fact, John puts it very plainly before us this morning. He tells us two things. One, that we may know Him. Not that we may know about Him, but that we may know Jesus, that we might personally know Him. John has been telling us who He is, that Jesus is our advocate, that He is right, He is the righteous, the holy one, that He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and such a sufficient sacrifice it is. But those things, those details in and of themselves, aren't the things that we, we don't just know the theological details. The point is, do you know him. So the question is, do you know Him? If you're here this morning, do you know Jesus? Not do you know things about Him. Do you know that He was this 
born in a manger, virgin born in Bethlehem, that he went to the temple, was teaching the, the, the teachers there at a very young age, that he lived a, an earthly ministry for a couple years, that he was crucified. Not the details of his life, all those, those, those things are important of really knowing him. The, the, the question is, in a relational, intimate way, do you know him? We're not talking about acquaintance. We're not talking about when you were 15 having been to a church camp and, and you heard about Jesus and then lived your life however you wanted. No, the question is, do you know Him in a way that He is there every moment of every day of every second of your life? Do you know Him? That's what Paul or what John rather is pointing at. We're, we're talking about deep, intimate, genuine uh, relationship here. In fact, that's what he's already written of in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We know Christ. We know Him personally. We, we, have, we have come to know who He is and, and He knows us. And then he comes to this more important question. Are you in Him? Let's look at the text. Look with me in your Bible. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. The first thing. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's a reality that John doesn't just simply stop the way that some people do at merely asking if you know Jesus. You know, if we're really going to start up, if we were to decide to start up a, a visitation program again, I, I think for far too long, American Christians have been asking the questions, do you know Jesus? And it's a fine question. We want people to know Jesus and not just theological facts about Jesus. We want them to, in a personal way, really know Jesus. But there is a deeper question that must be asked, and it's this question. Are you in Christ? Are you really in Christ? Are you grafted in to Christ? Do you have deep union with Him? This in Christ, these two words, I think, are the most powerful words in the New Testament. And that's not hyperbole. They're, they're wonderful. And John and Paul and the New Testament authors use them many times. In Romans chapter 16, Paul is writing uh, about greetings to, to other people. And he writes, greet my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. You'll know them. And they were in Christ before me. Uh, the thing that mattered to John and to Paul more than anything else was the reality that one would know that they know Him and that they would know that they're in Him. John chapter 15 gives us, Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of this reality. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He gives us a picture of a, of a vine and, and, and a vine dresser coming along and cutting a notch and grafting in those who are in Christ, that we are rooted into Christ, that we know Him in a very unique and personal and intimate way. And John is saying the same thing here. We are in relationship with Christ and we can know that we know Him and we can know that we are in Him. 
So we also come to the reality of seeing in this passage even the doctrine of regeneration. Christians aren't just people who have been through a mechanical religious process or right. They're not a a people who are made by pastors and popes and, and individual religious leaders. They are people who have been born again by the Spirit of Almighty God and grafted into the true vine. There are individuals who have been taken from being the darkness of this world to being light in the Lord. There are people who have been given new life and they have been again grafted in but by the will of God. And they can say with all assurance what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live but Christ who lives in me. And the life in the fl- that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The true convert in Christ knows Jesus. They can say, I know Jesus, and I know I am in Jesus, and I know this reality that there is new life in me, and not of my own doing. So, I'm glad you asked the question, how do we know these things? How can that be tested? Uh, We already know that John is writing in opposition to the Gnostics, to those who came to the church, and they would say, look, you can, you can know uh, that you are part of us, that you are uh, redeemed in a sense by this special knowledge. You'll have a special revelation. There are also the mystics who creep into every movement and they root their belief in unique experiences. And not only do they root their own belief in those unique experiences, they lord those experiences over others. And John immediately points out, listen, fellas, it's not a special knowledge that you need. It's not about a set of facts. It's not about a higher life or a higher knowledge. It's about knowing Him and knowing that you're in Him. That's how you can know. And he knows that, John, that there are going to be false representations then of who this Christ is. And so he encourages the believers to test the spirits and to know that they are in Christ. And friends, it's no different today. There are so many people who come into the church of God and they say, listen, pastor, I have a great idea. Well, great. Run it by God and if he includes it in the canon, then we'll move on. Until then, sit down and listen to the Word of God and live your life in light of it, in obedience. People come claiming to have special knowledge. They come with, and and this is one of the most discouraging things. People come with with these amazing, here's the, the, this is kind of a balancing act here. We can steward our testimony in such a way that when God brings us out of abject darkness, He gets the glory for that testimony and what He has done to bring someone to regenerate faith in Christ. And those are powerful testimonies. But there are some who almost peddle their testimony as a way to say, look at me and I am so much more of a convert than you because God brought me out of something way worse. And I've known Christians to tell me, I, 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 was struggle, I struggled in my assurance of faith because my testimony is simply that I believe from a very young age. And I've lived my life knowing Christ for every day that I can really remember. Do you not see how experience creeps in? And we start to root our assurance in, well, what about the experience? And we do have experience. I'm not negating that. But it ultimately is not the test that John gives here. 
We shouldn't doubt because we don't have some amazing, extraordinary, other kind of experience. Knowing Jesus and knowing that you are in Him is extraordinary in and of itself. Jesus cuts to the heart of the issue. And I think it's kind of funny because some people will come to the Bible and they'll say, you know, I really don't, I know I've, I've said this many times, but it's so true. People will say, you know, Paul is so just didactic and he just points to doctrine and I just don't like him. He, he's, too, he's too frank, he's too curt, he's too forward in the way that he writes. I much prefer John because John's poetic, he talks about light and darkness, he gives all of these word pictures, he's so much better to study and to read. He's, such, he's just a likable guy. And there we are giving glory to men again. And what's funny is that when, when, when John comes to this question of assurance and knowing that we are in Christ, he forgets to be a poet. He just puts it bluntly. He just says it. And by this, look with me, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. If you have special knowledge, it's not there. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If you have an exceptional experience, it's not there. And, this, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, that's it. The true relationship in Christ doesn't lead us to fanciful visions and feelings and the ethereal, although some may have experiences I'm not arguing against this morning. But what I know is this, as a first and primary, what the gospel does in life when we know Christ and we are in Him is it brings us to a point of obedience. We do have affections. We do have feelings. And again, some may have exceptional experiences, but they're not the test of true conversion. The real question is how do you live your life? What is your, what is your time and your talent and your affection spent on? What preoccupies your mind in, in your conduct and in your way of life? And some will wrongly say, well, yeah, I keep this list of things that I think Jesus wants me to keep. It's not about your list. It's about knowing Him and being in Him and following Him according to His Word. It means knowing Christ, resting in Him, looking to Him by His grace, becoming more and more like Him day by day. Yes, we come to the Ten Commandments and we have those and the Sermon on the Mount and all of the imperatives of the New Testament. And these are all reflections of who Christ is that push us in the direction of Jesus. The real question is, keeping His commandment means being like Him. He doesn't say that we won't stumble. He doesn't say that we won't fall. But He does say that those failures will not be the most prominent things in our lives. We may stumble in the darkness, but we won't live in the darkness. He says, whoever says I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, he's a liar. And the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You can't come to this, this test of 
keeping his commandments and making it about a system of laws. It's about a person. It's about knowing Jesus and being in him and walking in the way that you see him walking throughout the pages of Scripture. The overall tone of our walk is in view. Walk is a, a term that is used all throughout Scriptures. In fact, it begins in Genesis. Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis chapter 17, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. John chapter 8 verse 12, And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you remember what what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. And at one time you were the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul elaborates then in chapter 5 and he goes on to say that to walk in light means to walk in love and in truth and in wisdom. So the question here, the test of our lives and whether or not we are really Christians are are you walking in love and in truth and in wisdom the same way that Jesus did? Do you walk in increasing measure in a way that displays Christ to your neighbor? You know, it's interesting how when we come to know Christ, we can say we know Him truly. That we know who He is, but we don't know Him fully. And throughout the years, as we grow in knowing more and more about Him, and the great joy of life is to be in the Word of God for a Christian, and to see who Christ is more and more day by day. And when we see Christ with greater clarity, when we behold Him for who He actually is, and what He's doing, then what naturally follows for the genuine convert in Christ indwelled by the Spirit is that we become like Him. Because we are drawn not to the glory of men, but to His glory. We cry out to Him, we mourn over our sin, we seek His grace daily. And we must remember, we are not the light of the world. Jesus is. What Paul is, or what John rather is writing here is not, look, you'll never mess up if you are a Christian. What he is saying is, if you are in Christ, then you will behold the light of Christ and you will seek to walk in light of who he is. You will flourish in light of his love and his truth and his wisdom. Let me put it in a picture and I'll be done. And we've already been given the image of the vine and the engrafted branches that bear fruit. And friends, I'm just here to tell you this morning, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who do a lot of really good works. In fact, we're told in, in, in the summation of the gospel that Jesus will stand at the final day and he will say to many people, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And their, their angst and response will be, we did a lot of good things for you. I mean, if anybody could be assured of, of their salvation, it would be us because we're good people. Friends, it's not about our goodness. If we think about that picture of the vine and it's sprawled out and like a grapevine and you're walking as the vine dresser through the vineyard and all of a sudden sticking out of the vine is this great big engrafted rose bush that's just gorgeous. Wouldn't that make you go, well, that's out of place. Boy, it's pretty and it brings itself glory, but it doesn't look like it's actually part of the vine. Because it's not. And, and friends, let me just caution you. 
part of, I believe, uh, what is so dangerous is to misperceive that bringing glory to yourself and being good in and of yourself is what John is talking about here. And he's just simply not. He's given us the picture that we are an engrafted branch. As you go through a vineyard, you don't sit there and look at every little branch and marvel at the branch. You marvel at the entire thing that's going on there, don't you? And so it is in the Christian life to be rooted in Christ and to keep His commandments, to abide in Him and for Him to be in you will, will produce spiritual fruit, but that fruit won't bring glory to yourself. It won't bring attention to you as the branch. It will point back to the glory of the one that you were engrafted into. So we don't come this morning seeking glory for ourselves. We don't come to live the Christian life in such a way that people walk away going, wow, you are awesome people. We desire as a body that we live our lives loving one another, even if at times we don't like everything about one another. That He might get glory. That people would walk away from our gathering and our relationships and the way that we serve one another inside the body going, there's something unique about them. The Jesus that they love has made them different than all of the world. They are actually taking seriously the commandment to love one another. See, the, the test here isn't that we would increase in all of who we are, but that we would decrease and that God would get the glory and that we would have full assurance of our faith because of the atonement and the advocacy of Christ, not because of anything in us. So the question is this morning, do you know Him? Do you know Christ personally? Have you come to see yourself as sinful and flawed? And do you know that you need the redeeming grace of God? And not only do you know Jesus, but are you in Christ? Are you covered by the blood of Christ and Christ alone? Are you like Jesus? Are you gentle? And are you kind? Are you humble? Are you content? Are you satisfied on the words that God has spoken to you? Beloved, I think one of the most stirring realities throughout every age is this. Many people will come and they will say, I know Jesus. I am a Christian. But as the Word of God is explained flatly and plainly and clearly, they will take issue with His Word. And they'll say, yeah, I know that the Bible says this, but... And then they start to add in all of their own thinking. And that in and of itself is a picture that you're not in Christ. If His Word is not sufficient to you, if you think you need something other than His Word to live your life in faith and godliness, that's a scary thing. The questions this morning are flatly this. Do you know Him? Do you know that you're in Him? And are you becoming like Him? Would you pray with me? Father God, we come this morning knowing the reality that far too often we're not like You. Far too often we sin against our neighbor, against our spouse, against our children, against other church members in the body. Father, we lament that and we come to you this morning asking for your forgiveness. Father, we ask that you would reveal to anyone here this morning that isn't actually in Christ that that's true. That they would know that they're not a believer, that they might turn and believe upon Christ. 
Father, for those who are gathered here today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are in Christ, I pray that they would find so much joy in knowing that your atonement is sufficient eternally and that you are advocating on their behalf, that we can know that we know that we are in Christ. Father, what a gift that is, what a joy it is, how it will change our lives to know the one whom has saved us. Father, would you bless this?